continuing our series in Luke, stories of redemption from the Gospel of Luke. It's nice to be back here preaching again. It's been a while that that I've been here preaching for you guys, but thank God for our, our extended family, guys like Bauer Evans and Aaron Osborne who've come and served us. And also, thank God for folks in our own family, Jeff Havistow, bringing the message last week from Luke chapter 5, and serving us very well from the Word of God. Thanks, Jeff, and all your work. What a blessing. But I'm glad I get to do this again. It's a privilege to, uh, to share from the Word of God, and um, I love doing it. So we're going to be continuing in Luke this morning. You guys know the saying, a picture paints a thousand words. You've heard that. And these stories of redemption from Luke are really pictures that the Lord Himself has painted to communicate a thousand words of truth about our Savior and His kingdom. The pictures are themselves composed of words, but they have an effect as the story is told and as we understand what's going on to to give to us an impression, an understanding of the Lord and His ways that in some ways exceeds the, the words by themselves. A picture, a story in Scripture paints a thousand words. And it's my belief and I trust that through going through this series that we are going to have our, our lives enriched as we behold the Savior and all these different stories, and we get to see who He is. and In a way, perhaps we haven't before as these stories are given to us. Stories have that effect. Stories have an effect in us to to convey truth in a way that we may not receive otherwise. I think of some of the stories I've heard as a kid and how they've kind of lingered with me. Do you guys remember the story of Androcles, I think is how you say it, and a lion? Androcles is an escaped slave and he's in the, in the woods hiding. And he, I think, comes up to a cave and, and there's a lion in the cave. But he, as he sees the lion there, instead of the lion chasing him and devouring him, the lion is whimpering. And uh, he's got this large thorn through his paw. And Androcles decides, rather than to leave the lion alone, to go and to pull the thorn out. And the lion is very grateful and he's like a pet to Androcles. And... and uh, and then the story goes on, and later on, Androcles is captured as an escaped slave. And, and for his penalty for escaping is he gets put in the arena, the Roman Colosseum or whatever. And he's put in there, and he's going to be devoured by hungry lions. And this large, hungry lion is let loose in the arena and comes up to Androcles, and everyone's expecting him to devour him. And the lion instead comes up and starts nuzzling him and acting like a pet. And and what's going on? What's going on? And we find out that it's the same lion that he had taken the thorn out previously. And that's a little picture, a little story I just remember as a kid. And it conveys the, the value, the reward of kindness. Kindness given is kindness returned. So I could just say that truth, kindness given is kindness returned. And you might remember that. But if there's a story like this that goes with it, there's a greater ability to remember, yes, kindness given is kindness returned. Now, that's just a fable, a, man, a man's story, and it's a good one. But even more significantly, we have true stories here in Scripture. So that as we 
linger and, and observe these stories, we'll go away being able to understand truths for the long haul and see change in our lives. With that in mind, let's pray before we take a look at Luke chapter 7. Lord, we thank You for these wonderful stories. Lord, and how these pictures of You and Your dealings with lost sinners illustrate in such a powerful way who You are and who we are and what life is about and how we are to live. We thank You, Lord. And we ask You, Lord, together that as we go through this story today, that Your power would be here, that we might encounter You, and that Your truth might penetrate our minds and our hearts and change us. That we would behold in these stories Your glory, perhaps in a way that we haven't before, Lord. We need to see You. We want to know You. And so we ask You to use Your Word in these stories to show us Your glory and to be glorified, and to change our lives, Lord God. I pray You would bless each one here and You would use me, Lord. Though weak and sinful, Lord, I am cleansed by the blood of the Lamb and and You have given us grace that we might experience grace from You. And so we trust You. And we look to You. We ask You to work. And we thank You. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Luke chapter 7, verse 36 and following. We've been following along in the book of Luke and Jesus has been reaching out to the lost and to sinners. He came to seek and to save the lost. That is His mission. And so this story fits in line with that. It says in verse 36, One of the Pharisees asked Him to eat with Him. And He went into the Pharisee's house and took His place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. And Jesus, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, He canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. 
Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this? Who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It's Luke chapter 7, 36 to 50. What I want to do is walk through the story a little bit this morning. I kind of want to put us in the vantage point of being in that large living room, dining room, watching what's going on. So we're going to walk through that. We're going to learn a little bit about what it would have been like to be there. And then I want to draw some lessons from that. Because I believe the Lord's given us this story that we might draw some life lessons from it. So I invite you this morning to Simon the Pharisee's living room to watch what's going on. If you were there, and you were from that culture, you would understand the importance of eating together and feasting together. It was an important part of that society. And they would eat normal meals at night and so forth in the evening, much like we do. But once a week or so, they would have a special meal, a Sabbath meal, or for special occasions, a special meal. And those were a little different. Usually they would sit upright at the table. For these meals, they would recline. And there'd be a table in the center of the room, a, a big, low table, and the guests would come in and, and they would recline. Now, who you ate with was really important to them. For eating with somebody was an expression of friendship, of kinship, of partnership with them. So they were very careful. They were careful not to invite certain people, and they were careful to invite other people. And so Simon, the Pharisee here, is probably an important man in town, the Pharisees generally were well off. They usually were lay people. The Pharisees, this group of Pharisees, was a group of lay religious people in, in Israel who were especially devout and fairly conservative and strict in their interpretation of the Old Testament. Kind of like a, maybe a Knights of Columbus group or something, or but much more intense, no kino, um, but something like that. Uh, so this group was the guys that were really serious about their faith. And, and they usually, again, were well off. So Simon is probably an important person in the town, probably has a significant business or significant properties. He's well known. So the place to be on the Sabbath night was Simon's place. To get invited to that was, was pretty prestigious. And so Jesus, we know, has been ministering in this area. He's already been going throughout Galilee, ministering to the sick and sinners. And so his reputation goes before him, the itinerant rabbi, maybe prophet, maybe more. And so he's in town. It's a Sabbath night perhaps, and he gets invited, and he's the guest of honor. 
So to be in that room, you would see the important people around the table reclining. They would lie down. There's a low table. Lean on their elbow. And their feet would be sticking away from the table. And that's, that's how they would be arranged. But also in the room, you probably would see other people because what they would do is they would leave the door of the house open. And anybody was welcome to come in. So often for the poor people in town, that was their opportunity to get something to eat. So they would be welcome to come in and they would sit up against the wall and just kind of kind of take in what was going on, maybe serve some of the food. So, so this room, there was a lot going on here. Again, it was the place to be that night. And again, Jesus is the guest of honor. He has his particular place. And you're there in the room with them. And you're a fly on the wall. You're, you're up against the wall. You're just watching what's going on. And, you know, this is an important meal. You've got Simon there. You've got this Jesus guy, really important. And at some point in the proceedings of the evening, all of a sudden this woman comes in. It says, Behold, behold, a, a woman of the city who was a sinner. When she learned that he was reclining, Jesus, at the table, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. So all of a sudden this woman shows up and she's a well-known woman. She's from the city. Maybe she grew up there. It also says that she's a sinner. That was a term used in the Scriptures and in those days for somebody who was basically making no attempt to follow God. You have to remember, this is Jewish society. It's the whole society is built around the worship of God and centered on the temple and God's promises. But there were people who dwelled amongst that people and had religious people all around them, but but did not make any effort to follow God. They, they didn't attempt any semblance of observance. And they were essentially outcasts. So tax collectors, prostitutes. She could have been a prostitute. She could have been an adulteress. She could have been the wife of a tax collector. We don't know quite what she was, but she was a sinner. She had no previous intention of following God. She just lived there. She was an outcast. They considered such people without hope. And they were not compassionate. They were outcasts. They were, they were ignored. And so she's this sort of woman. And so you're in the room and you know this woman. You live in the town and you know the important people at the table. And all of a sudden, here comes that woman. She shows up at this dinner, this special dinner. She shows up. Behold, a woman from the city, a sinner, is there. And she's got something in her hands. She's got an alabaster flask of ointment. And your thought at that point is, what's going on? What's going to happen? Look, here she is. It's that woman. That sinful woman. That sinner that no one else wants to have anything to do with. That woman that every righteous man in town avoids. That woman whom every good wife or mother ignores. It's that woman. Of all people to show up at this dinner tonight, it's that woman, that sinner. And she's got this alabaster flask of ointment in her hands. What is she going to do? Those flasks would, would hold precious perfumes and, and ointments and so forth. It, it probably had some sort of oil with perfume in it, and it was expensive. These flasks might hold a woman's life savings in them. We know later on, when Mary of Bethany anoints Jesus, it was, it was very expensive. It was a year's wages worth or something like that that she had in that ointment. So this is an expensive thing. This might have been this woman's life savings. And she shows up at the house holding it. And Jesus is reclining and His feet are facing outward. 
And she comes in and she stands behind his feet. And we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what her intentions are at this point. But what we do know is what happens next. She's standing there and she can't do anything else. She just starts to weep. She stands over his feet and starts to weep. And it says that she wet his feet with her tears, but the word in the original language is not just about wetting her, his feet with her tears. It's the same word used for a rainstorm. She's raining tears on his feet. She is weeping profusely as she stands silently at Jesus' feet. And you're there in the room and you're watching this and no one's saying a word. Everybody's quiet, watching, wondering. Wondering what the Savior, what, well, you don't, may not know He's the Savior, but what this man Jesus is going to do. And she stands over His feet and just starts weeping and sobbing and drenching Jesus' feet with her tears. And you're wondering what's going on. And then the next thing she does, she probably puts back her hood. Any respectable woman, really any woman, was required to wear, to go out in public with something on their head. It was normal. She takes the hood off. Not only that, she perhaps bends down and lets her hair down. And that's shocking. And that culture at that time, women covered their heads in public and they did not let their hair down. Letting your hair down was something reserved for the privacy of the bedroom only. And so now this woman has come in. She's weeping at Jesus' feet. She's drenching His feet. Everybody's quiet watching what she's doing. She bends down, lets her hair down, and then uses her hair to wipe Jesus' feet, to dry His feet. But that's not all. She dries His feet, and then she takes her alabaster flask of ointment and starts to pour this expensive ointment, perhaps her life savings on Jesus' feet, and smear it around His feet, anointing His feet. And not only does she do that, but she starts kissing His feet all over. She continues to do it. Later on, Jesus says, since I came in here, she has been kissing My feet. So throughout this whole time, throughout this whole passage, she is kissing His feet continually. So can you imagine being there? It's that woman. And it's the Rabbi Jesus. The the prophet perhaps. And it's that woman coming in and she's at His feet making a scene, weeping, drying His feet with her hair pouring the ointment and kissing His feet. It's outrageous. It's embarrassing. It's inappropriate. And you're there in shocked silence, wondering. And Jesus is quiet. And I'm sure every eye in the whole room is watching the woman and then looking at Jesus, His face, to see what He would do. Watching the woman, looking at Jesus. Watching the woman, looking at Jesus, looking at Simon. Looking back at Jesus, looking at the woman, thinking, what is going on here? What is going to happen? And you look at Simon. And Simon doesn't say anything, but perhaps you could see in the look on his face this combination of surprise, shock, concern. I don't know how you put that all in a face together. But he's probably making a face thinking, what? What's going on? And we know his thoughts, as the Savior did. We know his thoughts. 
he's thinking, what is going on? It's that woman. And she's here. And she's touching him. And she's letting down her hair. And he's letting her touch him. And not just touch him, but she's let her hair down. She's using her hair to dry his feet. And she's kissing his feet. What sort of man is this? If he were a prophet, he would know who this is. Matter of fact, he's probably thinking, if he had any street sense, he knows who this woman is. It's obvious to everybody, and he's letting her touch him. He's letting her contaminate him with her tears, her sinful tears, and her hair, her sinful hair. We know where else she lets down her hair, and she's letting her hair down here and drying his feet. And this woman is kissing his feet. This woman, who kisses sinfully, I know, is now kissing his feet. And he is letting her do it. What is going on? That's, what's he, what, that's what he's thinking. That's what's going through Simon's mind. And that's the thoughts of a good Pharisee. For they were about being holy and maintaining their distance from sinners. Because they wanted to be holy for God. They wanted to be set apart for God. So they were careful not to go near that woman. And yet here is this rabbi, this would-be prophet. And he doesn't even know what's going on. What sort of man... Is that, but we know that he knew all that she was and all that Simon thought. For what does he do? He tells Simon something. He breaks the silence finally, after probably minutes of awkward silence. Simon, I have something to say to you. You know you're in trouble when the Savior initiates a conversation with you. Simon, I have something to say to you. And it's interesting to note that amidst our story, Jesus tells a story to illustrate to Simon and to us something. Just a little parenthesis here. Um, for us, we, when we want to communicate truth to people, remember this. The Savior used stories over and over again. So if you want to communicate truth to friends, family, coworkers, children, follow the Savior's example. Use stories. They will hang with your children. They will remain with your friends long after other instruction would. So use that. Use time alone with your parents, with children, bedtime, dinner table, to tell stories. To tell biblical stories. One thing that we've done and, and, uh, in the past, and I need to do it more nowadays. I haven't done it as much. The kids are a little older. The bedtimes are a little different. But we would, in the evening, read a Bible passage and then I would just make up a story to go with it. And Lord willing, those sort of things are going to remain in their mind for years to come. They may not remember the Bible verse, but Lord willing, they'll remember that story and that truth. That's how our Savior operated. I think there's wisdom in that. So he tells Simon a story in the middle of this story. His story is simple and direct. There's two men who owe money to a local banker, money lender. One owes, was it 300 denarii? How much is it? 500. One owes 5,000. Is that right? 50. Okay. And that was basically $10,000 on the low end and about 100000 on the high end. The denarii was about a day's wage. So there's one man who owes $10,000, the other 100000 One's a manageable amount. One is an impossible amount that can't be paid back. And they default on their loans, basically, and 
and the banker decides just to cancel. And so Jesus' question is, this goes on, who do you think is going to love the banker more? Who's going to love the moneylender more? You can see in Simon's reply that he knows he's in trouble. He knows that he's getting cornered somehow. But he's cordial at this point. The Pharisees are still somewhat cordial to Jesus early on. And he says, I suppose, the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. Okay, if you want an answer, I guess, you know, it's obvious. And Jesus says, you have judged rightly. Jesus powerfully illustrates what is going on there. Powerfully uses a story and gets Simon to see the truth of the story. Now, at this point, I don't think Simon knows quite where Jesus is going. I don't think anyone else in the room quite knows where he's going. We do, because we know the background. We understand forgiveness and sin and, and in light of Christ. But these folks didn't. So they're kind of still wondering, where's he going? What does the story have to do with the situation? The Lord continues. He says, you have judged rightly. And then he sets up a contrast. Just as there are two men in the story, there are two people here in this room. There's you, Simon, and there's this woman. And so he says, you have judged rightly. And then he turns towards the woman. He says to Simon, do you see this woman? Obviously he does. I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. And those days when you had an honored guest at your house, if you truly honored that guest, if you truly valued that person, one thing you would do is you would wash their feet or see to it that their feet were washed. In that culture, people walked mostly and they wore sandals. And you walked around on dirt roads and where camels and horses were, your feet were dirty when you came in the house. And it was a courtesy for the house servant, usually the lowest servant, to wash the guest's feet. Now, Simon had been courteous enough to invite Jesus to the meal, but he had not washed his feet or seen to it that his feet were washed. So Jesus said, you provided no water to wash my feet. But she had provided her tears. And she's wiped my feet with her hair. He goes on and says, you gave me no kiss. Again, you really valued someone. You would express that with affection and affirmation through a kiss in that culture. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil. Again, a a special courtesy given to especially honored guests. But she has anointed my feet with ointment. And he says, Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loves much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. He's contrasted Simon with this woman. And his, the woman's great devotion. And it's interesting to note that the Savior gladly receives the woman's adoration and thankfulness. He, he gladly receives it, even sees it as appropriate. And so he tells, he tells Simon, he tells everybody, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. He summarizes and explains the meaning of the story and the meaning of this whole interaction. And he basically says to Simon, I know her sins are many. 
Therefore I tell you, her sins, though they are many, I know that, they are forgiven. For she loved much. And he who is forgiven little, loves little. Basically says, Simon, you're the man in the story. He's gracious actually to Simon to say that you love little. I think the reality is that Simon doesn't think he's forgiven little even. Not because he doesn't need to be, because he doesn't think he needs to be. So he's gracious to compare Simon to the one who owed 10,000. He says, you love little. You didn't kiss me. You didn't anoint me. You didn't wash my feet. You love little because you've been forgiven little. This woman loves much. She's extravagant in her worship. She's even ridiculous and seemingly inappropriate in her gratefulness to me because she has been forgiven much. He who is forgiven much loves much. He who is forgiven little loves little. That is the point of the story. That is what's going on in this meal, in this special Sabbath meal. There's a stark contrast between one who has been forgiven little, or really not forgiven at all, and loves little, or really doesn't love at all, to one who has been forgiven much and loves much. That's the difference here. And there are some key lessons in this. We see that Jesus says this. He says to her, to cap it all off, your sins are forgiven. So not only is He illustrating the fact that He who is forgiven much, loves much, He pronounces her sins forgiven. He says, your sins are forgiven. And we know that it's not just at that point that her sins are forgiven. Because what Jesus is doing in the story is illustrating that someone who has already had their debt canceled, and it's a large debt, and knows that it's canceled, will in result of that, understanding that their large debt, very large debt, has been canceled, will love much. So she is already loving in the fact that she came and poured out her most valuable earthly possession and, and wept and gave her heart to Jesus and, and worship at that point because she had already been forgiven. And so he pronounces this has taken place. She is forgiven. That's why she acts this way. Now, it doesn't tell us what went on beforehand. We don't know if Jesus had a personal interaction with her or not. It doesn't tell us that story. But we are to rightly assume that she has already encountered the Savior. Remember, he's been going around this area. He's already been getting the reputation of being a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, that's, that's a... That's a bad reputation, by the way. We, nowadays, we value it because we've been affected by this truth. But on that day, that was a bad reputation. To be a friend of tax collectors and sinners meant you were like them. So he already has his reputation. We know he's already called Matthew to come and follow him. Who was Matthew? Matthew was a tax collector. And what did Matthew do when Jesus called him? He followed him. And then what did he do? He had a party that night. And who did he invite? He invited all of his friends, all the tax collectors and sinners. And they all gathered over the house. And they interacted with Jesus. Jesus never compromised who he was. But he loved tax collectors and sinners. And maybe that woman was in that house that night. We don't know. Maybe she heard Jesus. Maybe she saw who Jesus is. We know she had to at some point understand Jesus. That he's the Messiah. Probably heard his call to repent and believe. To turn from sin and believe in the Messiah. For the kingdom of God is at hand. God got a hold of this woman. And something happened in interacting with Jesus in her life that she saw something beautiful and worthy in Christ. She saw a Savior for her sins and a Lord to follow. 
and she turned from her sins, saw her sins as they really are vile, and turned to follow Jesus. So something had already gone on, and she recognized that in this Savior, she is forgiven. We don't know, maybe some time passed or whatever, but she hears He's in town, and that's why she shows up. And she comes to His feet, and we don't know, maybe she thought she'd come in and anoint His head or something. Maybe she didn't even know what she was going to do. She just knew, I've got to do something. I have to do something to express to Jesus my thankfulness, my love, my gratitude for what He's done. And so she just shows up with the, the flask and she comes to His feet and she's just overwhelmed at that point, at the feet of her Savior. And she just weeps and weeps and wets His feet and wipes with her hair and anoints His feet. And at that point, she's just aware of Jesus more than anything else. I don't think she's too worried about Simon and his friends. So she had been forgiven and therefore she loved much. And Jesus says to her, your sins are forgiven. And the people at the table are saying, what? Like our passage last time. Who is this who forgives sins? And He doesn't even reply to them. He looks to the woman. And in front of everybody it says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now we read that and we may not think it's a big deal. But it is a big deal. Because Jesus doesn't say to the woman, God will forgive your sins. Or God has forgiven your sins. Or that is true. He pronounces her sins forgiven. And they understand what's going on. They understand what comes with that statement. They understand that the only person who can forgive sin against God is God. And this is a man, they think. And he is forgiving this woman for her sins against God. Jesus is clearly making a statement to be God. And they understood that. Then, you know, Scripture leaves no room for this nonsense about Jesus being a good teacher or a good man merely. You can't draw that conclusion. Because He didn't leave it as an option. He made sure that, that you had to receive Him as God, as Lord, not as a good teacher. That's why the Pharisees and the religious establishment put Him to death. Because they knew that. They would have been very happy with a good man and a good teacher. If Jesus was presenting Himself that way, they would have received Him that way. It was because He said, I'm God, and there's no other option, that they rejected Him, condemned Him. And so clearly in this story, it teaches us one thing, among others, that Jesus is God. And we must deal with Him on this basis and no other. We cannot deal with Him as a good teacher that that tells good stories and is kind of witty and you'd like to be around a little while. No, He's God. He forgives sin. He has authority to forgive sin. And so the story ends, your faith has saved you, go in peace. And that's the end of it. And it moves on to some other stories, somewhat related. I believe that that's by design in some ways that it ends abruptly. We don't hear about what happens. We don't hear about what happens with Simon, right? We don't know after that point, what does Simon do? I mean, maybe Simon becomes a believer and that's why they know his name. I don't know. We don't hear anything about the woman. We don't know what happens with the woman afterwards. And I think that's on purpose for us. See, I think the Lord wants to present this story and kind of end it somewhat abruptly. We like stories that kind of you know, have the, finish it off and tell how everyone went. Was that, you know, those movies when they say what happened 20 years later? You know, the, we all like that. Well, this story's not like that. It just ends. But it ends and it leaves us with some questions and some lessons. And one is that this one claims to be God to forgive sin. 
I think there's some other lessons too for us as believers. Some important lessons. Not just for us as believers, but for any unbeliever, really. The Scripture presents Christ as Savior. As the Savior of sinners. As the One who's come to seek and save that woman. He's not like the Pharisees. He's not like the Pharisees who who say you must be holy to be accepted by God. You must do X, Y, and Z and then we'll start to consider you. He's totally different than that. He's a friend of sinners. He's a friend of tax collectors. He reaches out. And yes, He demands repentance and faith in Him. But He's not looking for a Pharisee. He's looking for a sinner who knows that he or she needs somebody to rescue them from their sin. That they know that they cannot do it. They cannot be a good Pharisee and accept, be accepted before God. They need a Savior who brings forgiveness and a new life. That's the sort of person He's looking for. And so the invitation for anybody who's not put their faith in Christ is to come to this one, a friend of sinners. That's one of the lessons. This is God in the flesh. The only way, the only truth, the only life who says, come to Me. Find forgiveness just as this woman did. So there's that lesson. But there's also a lesson in this for believers. You see, I think a heart cry for all of us, if you're a believer, because the Spirit of God is in you, there's a heart cry that says, I want to love Jesus more. I think that's in every believer. And that's our life struggle in a lot of ways, isn't it? For believers, we want to love Him more and we see ourselves letting Him down and and we want to love Him more. What are we to do? Well, I believe this passage gives us the answer to that question, to that heart cry. That heart cry that we all have. How do I love Jesus more? For it says here, He who is forgiven much, loves much. He who is forgiven little, loves little. He who is forgiven much, loves much. He who is forgiven little, loves little. Do you want to love much? Do you want to be like the woman? Do you want to love the Savior more? Do you want to walk with Him more closely? Do you want to be more devoted to Him? Do you struggle with that? Well, what you need to do in order to love much is be forgiven much. And if you are forgiven little, you will love little. If you are in the place of loving Him little right now today, the the reason for that is, perhaps, I think, from this passage, that you have been forgiven little. That's why you love little. You've been forgiven little. You want to love Him much? Be forgiven much. And you're probably thinking, okay, that that helps a lot, you know? Because what you're saying is, if I'm not that bad of a sinner, I'm never going to love Him much. I have to be a really bad sinner. What are you saying? I need to go out and sin really bad? Do really bad things? And, you know, go rob some banks and, you know hijack an airliner and then you know be forgiven then i can love much no but i do think you have to be forgiven much to love much and the reality is is not that simon had little sins to forgive and therefore he was doomed to love little but that simon didn't know how much he needed to be forgiven therefore he loved little and for us it's the same there is plenty of sin in the holiest person on earth to go around. For even the smallest sin against God is sin against an infinitely good Heavenly Father. A perfect, 
Father who's never done any wrong, who's been good, and who has given you every good thing you have. Every gift, every benefit, every enjoyment you have comes from Him. The clothes on your body, a, he- a healthy body, the hair on your head, the food you eat, the air you breathe, your mother and father, your, your friends, your job, the chairs you sit in, sunshine each day, the stability of the earth, all these things come from God. He has only always ever been good to you and to me. And He's been perfect. He's wise. He never does anything wrong. All His decisions are just and right. They are the optimum decision. They are the perfect decision. They are the best. All the things that He's determined to do are right and good. Always. Ever. There's no flaw in Him. He's perfect in every way. He is so good that you can't even behold His presence. He's just too good and glorious and amazing. We can't even approach Him. That's how good He is. How glorious He is. How excellent He is. And so any little doubt, any little rebellion is infinitely awful because He's infinitely good. And so every doubt that we have is a slap in the face to a perfect friend. Every idolatrous desire and action is a betrayal of the One who is ultimately satisfying and worthy. Every single one. And so our sin, no matter how small the world may think it is, is very large. So you have plenty to sin to work with. You and I, we both do. And so it isn't so much whether you sin little or sin much in the world's eyes, do you know how much you have sinned? If you want to love much, then you must recognize that you have sinned much. That's what this passage is teaching us. The key to loving Jesus more is knowing that you have sinned much. And then knowing that you're forgiven much. He who is forgiven little loves little. He who is forgiven much loves much. So let me suggest some steps that we can take to be like this woman. Now all these steps are things that we can do. They will not work at all unless the Spirit of God breathes on them. So in these things, we are to be prayerful. God, help me work through this. But let me suggest some things to do. If you are in this place, is anyone in this room in the place where they want to love Jesus more? Okay, I'm there. So let us consider these steps. First, I think we need to consider how good God is. We need to understand the contrast. We need to set a context to put our sins so that there's a contrast. Our sins don't mean a whole lot unless they're set in the context of an infinitely good God. So the first step is to recognize, to grow in our understanding and appreciation for how good God is. So, maybe make a list of the things that God has done that's good. And, and if you use your creative abilities that He's given you as a human being, that list can be very long. Matter of fact, if you really work at it, you can be making that list the rest of your life. And it can grow and grow and grow and deepen and deepen and deepen. But take some time to meditate on His goodness. Meditate on His goodness in creation. Meditate on His goodness all around you in relationships. Meditate on His goodness ultimately in the fact that this infinitely good God has sent His own Son to die for your sins. To live the perfect life for you and to die for your sins. Meditate on His goodness and then thank Him for it. Don't just write it down. Don't just conceptualize it. Thank Him. Thankfulness is so powerful. Thankfulness helps us set the context for reality. 
Thankfulness sets us in reality. We, we don't live in reality often. Thankfulness sets us back in reality because it recognizes what reality is. It's God's goodness everywhere. So it's so helpful. It's so important for us to cultivate thankfulness. This is something I'm recognizing for me that much of my struggle at times is because I'm not cultivating thankfulness. I'm not practicing it. So I'd encourage you to spend time thanking God for His goodness. Set the context for reality of the goodness of God in your life. Number one. Number two. Consider how sinful sin is. Think deeply about your sinful habits and dispositions. Think deeply about them. Think how selfish, twisted, and dark they are. Start to probe them. Think about these things in context of the goodness of God and how these are are slaps in the face to a perfect friend. Rejection of perfect goodness. Make every effort to see the sinfulness of sin and how it's a contradiction to all reality. It's dark. It's twisted. It's, it's deceptive. It's nonsense. It's a lie. It's destructive. It hurts me. It hurts others. It hurts God. Take time to do that. You see, we, we believe in joy as a church. We want to pursue our joy in God. and We, we value joyfulness. And this is to be a, a regular experience for the believer. But that's not to exclude seasons of weeping, mourning, and wailing. And if we neglect this practice, if we neglect the habit of repentance and conviction of sin and seeking sorrow, our joy is going to be shallow and our love is going to be little. James 4 says, Draw near to God. and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. He's talking to believers here. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. God wants us to do this. God wants us to see our sin and to weep, mourn, and wail over our sin. And it's not going to come unless you pursue the understanding of it and the Spirit of God breathes on that. In the Great Awakening in New England 300 years ago or so, this was a common experience before people came to understand the beauty of Christ and their forgiveness. Before society was reformed by the impact of the Gospel, there was much weeping, mourning, and wailing that went on. God breathed on these folks through the preaching of men like Jonathan Edwards and others so that people understood the sinfulness of their sin. He says, great numbers under this influence have been brought to a deep sense of their own sinfulness and vileness. The sinfulness of their lives, their heinousness of their disregard of the authority of the great God and of their living in contempt of a Savior. They have lamented their former negligence of their souls and their neglecting and losing precious time. The sins of their life have been extraordinarily set before them. And they have had a great sense of their hardness of heart, their enmity against that which is good and proneness to all evil, and also of the worthlessness of their own religious performance. It has been a common thing that persons have had such a sense of their own sinfulness, they have thought themselves to be the worst of all, and that none ever was so vile as they. Before you become like this woman in your devotion, you need to recognize, I need to recognize, we need to recognize the sinfulness of our sin. To see the goodness of God first and to be thankful, but then to see our sin in contrast to that goodness and to weep and mourn and wail and say, Lord, this is horrible. And it's in me. And it comes out. 
and I'm captive to it and I need help. I need forgiveness. I need someone to rescue me. See, we don't value the rescuer unless we, unless we recognize how terrible our situation is and how much we need to be rescued. So number one, the thankfulness for the goodness of God. Number two, looking at our sins. And then the band could come up. Number three, and finally, as we weep, mourn, and wail, as we recognize the sinfulness of sin, to recognize that though our sins be as scarlet, though they be as dark as can be, though they be ugly, truly ugly, treacherous, destructive, though they be all these things and more, because we'll never understand how horrible they really are. Though our sins be as scarlet, though they are so terrible that God Himself had to die for them, Though they be as scarlet, Jesus Christ has shed His holy blood to pay for all our sins. And through faith in Him, the only Savior, we are clean. We are reconciled. We're forgiven. And He now calls us friends. Sons and daughters. He who is forgiven little loves little. But he who is forgiven much loves much. Let's pray. Lord, would You give us the grace to see that our sins are many. Please, Lord. Everything around us, our flesh, our culture, the enemy would want us to Treat our sins some other way, even as desirable, acceptable, or shallow, or light. Please help us to see. Bring conviction. Bring conviction in light of how good You have been. Please, Lord. We want to love You more. We know we're supposed to. We want to. Help us, God, to see Help us, Lord, once we have seen how many our sins are and how good You have been. To hear those words, You are forgiven, go in peace. Walk in peace. Walk with me in peace. That those words would be precious to us. And Lord, we would be like the sinful woman. We would give our all to You. We would give You our most costly earthly possessions. We would give You our affection, our tears, our devotion. We would be willing to embarrass ourselves even for Your sake that we would love much, O oh God. We want to love You, God. Please help us.
and receive our worship, God, from grateful hearts. Amen.